praying our Ecclesiastes prayers on the front page of the notebook. Lord, give us life as we seek you and your kingdom with a whole heart, as we attempt to fear you and keep your commandments. Let our life be found in Christ, led by the Holy Spirit, as we walk in the arena of God's great mysteries. Amen. Um, so I want to start, before I read our passage from Ecclesiastes, I'm going to share that uh, as I've been thinking about this and praying about this passage this week, um, actually, like the background of my thinking about this sermon was this psalm, Psalm 2714. Um, this, this verse has been sort of tied to it, which is, Wait and hope for and expect the Lord. Be brave and of good courage, and let your heart be stout and enduring. Yes, wait and hope for and expect the Lord. So that kind of underlies um, how I'm thinking about this passage in Ecclesiastes, which is, and I'll read our passage this week, is Ecclesiastes 9, 13 through 10, 3. So if you have a Bible, you can um, read along with me. This is the NIV. I also saw under the sun this example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. There was once a small city with only a few people in it, and a powerful king came against it, surrounded it, and built huge siege works against it. Now there lived in that city a man poor but wise, and he saved the city by his wisdom. But nobody remembered that poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength, but the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are no longer heeded. The quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. As dead flies give perfume a bad smell, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. The heart of the wise inclines to the right, but the heart of the fool to the left. Even as fools walk along the road, they lack sense and they show everyone how stupid they are. So earlier in chapter 9, right before we get to this section of the text, we're reminded that we all share a common destiny. That the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who don't, that the same fate awaits them all. That we're all going to die. So Kohelet, the teacher, he urges the hearers and readers to enjoy the life before them, to enjoy the food, the relationships, and the work in front of them while they're still alive under the sun. And then right after that, we come to this parable about the poor wise man. Um, Kohelet calls this an impressive example of wisdom. And then he gives us a string of proverbs that support the story that wisdom is better than folly, but wisdom is still vulnerable to folly, still tainted by folly. So wisdom and the benefits of wisdom and the limits of wisdom have been a through line throughout all of Ecclesiastes. In the very opening, the teacher brings up the core problem that he's contemplating, that life is vapor, meaningless, smoke, that life is hevel. And as he considers the problem from all sorts of angles with all sorts of possible solutions, the first thing he considers as a solution is wisdom. And he declares it better than folly, but still hevel. Still insufficient. And the teacher returns to that idea of wisdom here in this parable and the series of proverbs that follow it. Um, 
And the Proverbs, they don't reference the parable explicitly, but they deal with the same set of tensions and contradictions um, about wisdom and its benefits and limits. So this parable like harkens back to Kohelet, the teacher's earlier conclusion. Um, It says that the poor but wise men, through his wisdom, he saved this small city against a powerful king and his giant siege. So it's giving us an image of wisdom being strong enough to defeat, uh, as an underdog city, to defeat this powerful king. Um, Commentator also points out that the Hebrew is really ambiguous in that story. The translation could be understood as the poor wise man could have saved the city through his wisdom. So it could be, in the Hebrew, if you're reading it, you might be understanding that he did save the city through his wisdom or that he could have saved the city through his wisdom, but no one remembered or listened to him. So either way, um, it's considering a city that either was saved uh, through wisdom that was forgotten and then no longer listened to, or the story might be about a city that was, could have been saved through wisdom, um, but, but wasn't. Either way, uh, in the story, wisdom is good. It holds the potential to save the city from overwhelming odds, but it also won't be remembered or venerated or continually listened to. There's this, this uh, image of good that it could have done but doesn't, the wisdom will be forgotten and despised. So parables, just like contemplation literature, like Ecclesiastes, are meant to be read over and over and unfold in meaning over time. The form of a parable tends to be short. It has very few characters or elements and multiple layers of meaning. So there's a Jewish rabbinic tradition of reading these parables multiple times. And as you read it, kind of considering a different character, the primary character each time. So a first read might have us consider the poor but wise man, the primary character. And we can contemplate the way that his social status interacts with his wisdom. Is it harder for leaders to listen to him because he's poor? It keeps repeating that he's poor but wise. Is his poverty mentioned because then, just like now, authority and wisdom is not looked for among the poor? Is his poverty connected to the ultimate dismissal and forgetting? Um, So there's a layer of meaning there for us. Who are we not listening to because we don't expect wisdom in those places? Um, Where do we not speak wisdom because other characteristics uh, that apply to us might not be immediately associated with wisdom? Or we can read it and consider that strong king laying siege to the small city. He has large forces and a superior strength. But even that is not able to prevail against the wisdom of one poor man. Or we can read it and consider the people in the small city, the forgetters, the city that was saved or could have been saved through a wise man's wisdom. What was lost in the forgetting or in the lack of attention to wisdom? We see that the poor man is ultimately forgotten and despised. His words, his wise words, unheeded, And in the end, the story brings up attention or the sense of incompleteness. We feel the wrongness of the forgetting of the wise man and his words. And maybe we recognize it too. Maybe we have experienced this, either being the forgetters um, or having wisdom that we've poured out, forgotten or despised or ignored. That someone with knowledge to save the city will be ignored and passed over pulls into focus one of those paradoxes of Ecclesiastes. It's that there is an unpredictability and a vulnerability to life under the sun. So while wisdom is good, it does not guarantee ease. 
or position or even usefulness. It just might not be listened to. There's a series of proverbs right after this story that add layers to the story. They remind us that wisdom is better than weapons of war. And that makes sense because we just heard a story about a city that could have been saved against a great army through wisdom or was. But the proverb then goes on to say that one sinner destroys much good. And then we read that a dead fly can give the whole vat of perfume a bad smell. And that a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. So we have these repeated reminders that while wisdom is good, it's not a guarantee. Just a little foolishness can taint the whole thing. That feels very ecclesiastical to give us a story showing wisdom is better than strength, able to save a small city from the attack of a powerful leader, but then to remind us that a little folly can do a lot of damage. Just one fly in the ointment makes the whole thing stink. Just one sinner can destroy much good, and a little folly can outweigh much wisdom and honor. Uh, And thinking through that reminds me of something that I read earlier in our series that a commentator said it stuck with me throughout the whole of Ecclesiastes, that Ecclesiastes is a picture of human abilities and reason stretched to the limits and found wanting. That our ability to seek and to understand and to listen to and to follow wisdom runs up against the limits of living a finite and unpredictable life. And the more time we spend in Ecclesiastes and the more we consider all the aspects of life that are vapor, things that don't quite satisfy, that there are imbalances and injustices and frustrations that continually happen to us under the sun, and that our own lives have this fleeting nature, the more I consider these things through Ecclesiastes, the more I'm filled with longing. And I hope that you are too, because we're not left with that insufficiency. Um, we have the hope and promise of restoration and resurrection. So we can acknowledge the frustration and the unfairness. We can acknowledge the injustice and the way that folly, our own and that of those around us, taints the goodness of wisdom, our own or that of those around us. And we can acknowledge that all of that without despair because we're sustained by grace We are not subject to the permanence of death. We're not subject to the permanent spoiling of folly of our own or of those around us. We may suffer from the consequences. We do suffer from the consequences of the folly and the sin and injustice around us, but we're not actually bound to life under the sun. We wait on resurrection. And resurrection follows death, so we will still experience a variety of death in relationship, in dreams, in our physical bodies. And we will experience the accompanying pain of death. But we belong to a kingdom that's not bound under the sun. And our true home in Christ is in the unshakable kingdom where God's will is done. It's the one that we pray into every week. And that's our greater reality. So we experience the beauty and the trauma of life under the sun And Ecclesiastes articulates for us how frustrating that can be, but it can also increase our longing for a kingdom where all things are made new. So there are two final verses in the section today that I haven't touched on. It's that the heart of the wise incline to the right and the foolish to the left. And the foolish cannot even walk down the road without showing everyone how foolish they are. So on the theme of longing, 
um, reading that the paths of foolishness and wise are in completely different directions, I'm leaving us with the prayer that our hearts incline to the right, towards wisdom, the opposite direction of folly, where those walking down are so obviously foolish that even the simple act of moving along it declares their lack of wisdom. I'm going to pray for us that we would walk towards wisdom, but that we would know we're not left with the insufficiency of human wisdom, that we are waiting on resurrection. And even now we are experiencing it. So if you would, please come and gather the elements for communion and we will participate together in that eternal kingdom. We'll share a meal of communion, a reminder of Christ's sacrifice for us and a foreshadowing of the wedding feast.